At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Have you ever been interested in taking meaningful and eye-catching self-portraits? If so, our self-portrait photography indoors on a budget course is perfect for you. I'm actually the instructor and I'll be teaching you how to take really beautiful photographs of yourself indoors without investing in any other equipment. These lessons are all about making the most of what you have, experienced or not, and telling an authentic story. There are 30 video lessons that include quizzes, a community of photographers, random surprises, and much more. This is an incredible opportunity for you to improve your self-portrait photography skills and to impress everyone around you. I have a very special discount code just for our podcast listeners. We're offering a 50% discount code just for you. Use this code to claim your discount, Portrait50. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. Today's episode is all about aerial and fine art photographer Carolyn Chang. Carolyn works as a chief operating officer in Canada, a job, as you can tell, that is completely unrelated to photography. This helps her maintain balance in her life and take truly breathtaking photographs. She and I talk about the concept of the feminine sublime and what that means to her, how the pandemic has affected her aerial work, and much more. Please enjoy. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Good morning, Taya, and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I wanted to say before I introduce myself that I'm really enjoying the cross-disciplinary aspect of your podcast. So I listen to lots of landscape photography podcasts, but it's been great to hear from other types of photographers as well. And I especially enjoyed your recent podcast with Adam Oswell, this year's Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. So a little bit about me. Um, By day, I am the chief operating officer of a national residential real estate company here in Canada. And then in my off time, I spend most of my waking moments uh, doing photography. 
So pre-pandemic, I specialized in aerial photography and what we in landscape photography call smaller scene or intimate landscape photography. Um, I've always had more of an attraction to photographing probably more abstract and pattern oriented images rather than um, maybe the more realistic kind of grand landscape, which is why I think I'm drawn to those types of photography. Mm -hmm. That's a great introduction. I really like your work because, as you said, it's more abstract, it more, focuses more on emotions, and that's what makes it really stand out. And I mean, when I first saw your work, I thought I was looking at paintings. I thought I was looking at some very, very expressive emotive paintings, and I was so surprised to find out that they were actually photographs. So I'm very curious to know how you achieve that in your work and what inspires you in general. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, I often actually do get that reaction to the work, especially when people see it in person. Um, I print on sort of fine art matte paper, and that seems to really add even to, you know, the sense of, of painting. So why do I think it comes across that way? That's interesting. I, I think it's the aerial perspective. It really abstracts everything and it creates like a far more painterly and sort of lyrical and organic view of the world. Um, a lot of times from that perspective, especially because I'm abstracting the work, it's more like I'm almost taking shapes within the landscape. Uh, you know, it has a little bit of that abstract expressionist feel. Um, I think that probably evokes, you know, painters of that movement. And I, I think that's probably why it actually creates that painterly feel on top of, um, you know, especially when people see it in person, the way it's printed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, we don't usually see the world from such an angle. And so to us, it's already quite surreal seeing it from that angle. But then even more so when it's abstract, the way that you photograph it, just kind of it's a completely out-of-body experience, otherworldly experience. It definitely makes you think differently about photography and what people can achieve through their work. Definitely, yeah. I'm curious to know, what camera equipment do you use? Uh, yeah, so in aerial photography, it's nice to be able to have two cameras while you're up in the air in case one fails, but also just to have two different perspectives. And it's sometimes maybe not as safe to change uh, lenses while you're up in the air, just because you've got uh, high speed wind flow sometimes. So my main camera in aerial photography is a Nikon D850 with an 85 millimeter Sigma Art f1.4 lens. Um, so since I like to make abstract images, that more mid-range focal length allows me to do that. And the fast lens gives me more leeway to keep the shutter speed high in the air, which you want to do just because you're moving at a fast speed, but there are also vibrations in the aircraft itself. So uh, that just helps you keep the images sharp. Um, and I typically photograph with this lens, I would say about 80 to 85% of the time. So it's definitely my kind of go-to setup. My backup camera uh, was a Nikon D810 with a 2470 f2.8 lens. You know, in certain landscapes where you've got mountain ranges that are just a little more expansive, you almost do want a wider vantage point to capture images. So I do like to have that as a backup. And I said it was because I have recently actually switched that backup camera for the air to the Nikon Z7 II. So I've gone to the mirrorless. I, that really has become sort of my um, primary landscapes or in the field camera, just because it's so much lighter. You know, the lenses are fabulous. And 
I do now some botanical photography, plant and macro photography, and just having the focus peaking in the viewfinder and the live view have been really nice. So yeah, I've made the move to mirrorless. That is exciting. Has it been difficult to adjust to mirrorless cameras or not? Uh, no, it's been fairly intuitive. Um, you know, I stayed with Nikon, so I'm the the systems are pretty similar. And it's really just, yeah, having like the additional feature or two that I quite like. And I, you know, actually before I shot DSLRs, I used to shoot micro four thirds. So I'm kind of used to uh, the, the mirrorless setup and the, and the digital setup. Mm, that's great. And thank you for talking about your equipment. I, I actually have never imagined that wind force would be an issue because it's not an issue in my life as a portrait photographer. So it's crazy to think that you have to consider that when you're shooting aerial photographic wind force and the dangers of that. <laughs> well, it's actually, I mean, as long as you're careful, you don't really need to worry about it. Like when you're shooting, because there is a point, if you put your camera out too far that, yeah, it will get taken away by the wind. But if you stay within that, there are no issues. It's just that when you're up in the air, you never really know. Uh, and so you really want to be safe with your equipment. And so you, it's better to have two versus making changes up in the air with, with your lenses. That's true. Better safe than sorry, right? Absolutely. Your job as a chief operating officer isn't related to photography. How different do you think your relationship with photography would be if you pursued it full-time? Um, yeah, good question. Um, well, with my immersion in the photography world coming probably at a later stage in life, so I began around 2015, I've always had a separate career, but I've liked having the separation because it means that my photography can stay focused on my personal areas of interest. So I'm really lucky that I don't need to rely on it as a business to generate my income. Although I'm always ecstatic, though, when I do have friends or colleagues or social media connections who want to buy my work, you know, it's always so much fun uh, to print and to frame and to see the joy on their faces when they, you know, experience it for the first time in person and when they have it up in their homes. Now, I will say that my practice has probably evolved during the pandemic and, you know, my thoughts could shift over time but I think it will stay the same. So effectively um, pre-pandemic with my practice being much more focused on location-based travel, I could do you know, trips over five weeks of vacation, which is what I had during the year. And then of course at home, I would you know, finish with the post-processing, but it probably wasn't as big a part of my life just because there were also so many other things to do in a pre-pandemic life. Um, but today during the pandemic, I've really come to realize how important photography as a creative aspect of my life is to me. And it's something that I now do on a weekly basis, whether I'm outdoors at a botanical garden or in the studio photographing um, natural things. So it's been a really balancing and centering practice that has kept me sane. And I think importantly, maybe helped me feel like I'm still growing and moving forward in a time when there's been a lot of things that we can't do. I've always been someone that's, you know, really valued continuous improvement. It's a core part of who I am. So I'm really thankful that I've had this opportunity to grow through photography at this time. But like I said before, I think I'd still like to keep it more as a passion project rather than a commercial project, at least for the moment. I really like what you said about it helping you grow during a mm. time when there isn't much progress being made in the world and we feel like we're stuck in our homes and we can't really do much. It's a really good point that you're making because, I mean, especially if you're not 
a full-time photographer. Sometimes it can feel that photography is just something that you like and it's just something that relaxes you, but it's much more than that. It can also help you grow, as you said, emotionally. It can help you learn about yourself. So it's amazing that you've had these personal discoveries during the pandemic. Yeah, it's been, um, yeah. And I don't think that I would have realized that if it wasn't for the pandemic. So, you know, there are some silver linings um, in very difficult times. Absolutely. Your artist bio states that you examine the feminine sublime in the natural world, which is such an elegant way of describing one's work. What do you look for when capturing the feminine sublime in landscape and aerial photography? Good question. Yeah. So maybe to set the stage, um, I'll first start with defining the traditional sublime and then explain how the feminine sublime is different because in some ways it's defined in opposition of it um, and then how you see it in my work. So the traditional definition really starts in the 17th century and evolves through history in both the European and American schools. But over its course, you know, if you're to condense everything, um, it's this notion that nature inspires awe and terror. And there's also a sense of vastness, infiniteness in this dramatic scale. Um, and together, uh, they evoke divinity, the unrepresentable, and or transcendence. And in some representations, there's also this notion of mankind's need to dominate uh, his terror. Now, for me, you know, these are really grand concepts, and there's some that I identified with a little bit more and some a little bit less. So I really identified with the concepts of awe and the unrepresentable, maybe less so to terror. And um, I really hope that my work evokes an emotional response, but, you know, for me, maybe divinity and transcendence might feel a little too strong. So when I began to learn a little bit more about the feminine sublime, I realized that it um, focuses a lot more on those dimensions that I identified with. So the unrepresentable or the otherworldly, and it doesn't necessarily seek to master or to dominate, but rather kind of works in this position of respect to nature. And then to amplify that, the notions of ecofeminism, which I kind of combine with my um, feminine sublime, it's really um, a departure from the traditional view of nature in a mechanized world where it's only uses for consumption, but rather, you know, to amplify that notion of coexistence between humanity and nature, where we've got to develop a much more sustainable relationship, which is, you know, also a lot about the discourse that we're having today on the environment. Um, so when you look at my imagery when you essentialize it, it really shows these symbiotic parts of nature where we see the interplay of water, sand, salt, and sediment in a very dynamic form where patterns are formed, dispersed, and then regenerated. And it illustrates, you know, those basic cycles of the landscape in its natural state, um, you know, much more emphasizing that ecofeminism aspect. And, but then because it's taken from an aerial perspective, um, you know, people can't immediately comprehend it. So it feels really otherworldly, which is, you know, the feminine sublime notion. So it's always such a surprise and delight for me when people then understand that this otherworldly thing that they've seen, that they identify with, it's really just water, sand, salts, or earth. So when you focus in close, you can see those details. So in that sense, my work is really about transforming those ordinary natural elements into hopefully what people see as beautiful, moving images that, you know, really give us a sense or a possibility of the otherworldly. It shifts our sense of perception of what's possible. 
And, you know, my aesthetic tends to be quite organic and lyrical in shape just because of the dynamic and ephemeral nature of those landscapes. What an incredible description, first of all. I'm very impressed. <laughs> oh, thank you. Such a beautiful description. And I appreciate the way that you approach your work. You approach it with a lot of care and it's very clear that you put a lot of thought into every image. And as an aerial photographer, as you said, when you take photographs, you can't really plan your shots. You have to just go with what you have. And mm -hmm. so how do you combine that spontaneity with a very detailed and meaningful approach to your work? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think they're almost two separate processes, I would say. So when you're in the air, you know, you don't have the same amount of time that you would have in studio or in the field. It's not so incredibly fast paced that you don't have time to be deliberate, but it is definitely much more of an instinctive and an innate process when you're up in the air. You know, you make very quick decisions, but I still do shoot single shot up there. So I can still be deliberate about the composition, um, but you really have to make quick decisions. You have to get out of it. For me, my analytical brain, I completely let that go. And I am pretty instinctive. So, you know, what I see that resonates with me, that moves me, that excites me, that's what I photograph. Um, and I try to be as deliberate as I can about it, but, you know, it is a pretty quick process when you're up in the air. I think when I get back down onto the ground and as I'm processing things, that's when things, you know, get probably a lot more precise. So I will look at uh, the composition. I will, you know, maybe crop it a little bit so that the composition and flow are really, really clear. And then in terms of the processing, you know, it's a lot of the techniques to give it more flow. Um, so, you know, it's the way that you finally settle on the composition. I actually turn the image um, 90 degrees four times to see which way it flows better or communicate something to me. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times it's the dodging and burning to make sure that, you know, the viewer's eye goes through the image in the way that you would hope that is really as clear as possible. So I, I think up in the air, it is that innate and instinctive process that is about, you know, your personal expression and what resonates with you. But on the ground and in the processing in the dark room, it's um, taking that detail-oriented nature to make sure your, your, your emotion and your expression is uh, carried through with as much detail as possible. Hmm. I love that you were able to combine your intuitive side with your analytical side in a very organic way. It sounds mm -hmm. like a very organic process for you. Like it's intuitive at first and then you get to analyze and, and experiment with different angles and rotations. And yeah, I love how organic it sounds. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think part of why I love aerial photography is that I am very analytical by nature. For some reason, I am able to, when I'm up in the air, like let all of that go and really access, you know, sort of the creative, more expressive nature in a more instinctive manner. And, um, you know, I think it's actually a bit of the subconscious and the conscious kind of combining themselves. And yeah, I really, I really like that because on the, on the, in the field, I am much more analytical and I just like to be able to access a different part of, um, you know, who I am. Right. Yeah. It sounds therapeutic. I mean, I'm the same. I also am very analytical in my day-to-day -day life almost mm -hmm. to a fault. <laughs> and so it is nice to be able to let that go through photography and discover a different side of yourself. So yeah, it sounds yeah. like it's something that you 
really embrace and something that really relaxes you personally. Yeah, definitely. During the pandemic, many of us have had to completely change the way that we take photographs, of course, and you've chosen to work locally, both in studios and in botanical gardens. Was there anything specific that drew you to this type of photography? Yeah, I would say um, there were probably two influences, uh, one for the botanical and one for the studio life. So studio life for the studio. (laughs) I've always enjoyed Sarah Marino's plant photography, um, but I just hadn't really had the time to explore it myself. So with the downtime from travel, this really allowed me to do so. And I think I took to it immediately because there are some similarities with aerial photography. So in some of the images, there is a degree of abstraction and pattern work that is similar. In fact, some of the plants that are large enough, I can even photograph top down in kind of an aerial fashion, but it's just from one or two feet above versus, you know, the 1500 feet uh, above off the ground. Um, And in some of it, it's entirely different kind of photography because it is far more realistic and not as abstracted. So I think having some similarities was very grounding and made it easier to access. And the differences made it really engaging to learn something new. And then I also found it quite compelling uh, because I found myself processing for the very first time in black and white. And while I love black and white imagery, it isn't something that I felt compelled to do in my own work before. And I think, you know, in this time and just, you know, my penchant to escape reality with my work, I think that's why the black and white made it a bit of a whole new world for me. And then even within that, I really liked working with inversions or the negative of images. And I I think that that's a little bit, you know, we're living in a bit of a darker world and one that's a little bit topsy-turvy turned upside down. So working with inversions also just really felt appropriate and a reflection of our times. And then the second influence was actually through an artist friend of mine. So my friend, Jess Tallman, um, she's a practicing artist here based in Toronto, and she's also an art educator. So at the time, she was uh, reviewing my botanical work and giving me a little bit of critique. And she was also giving me some lectures on still life artists because we were exploring, you know, different genres that I could explore while not doing aerial photography. So When she was reviewing my botanical work, she told me that some of my abstracted floral work made her think of Robert Maplethorpe's work um, because he really, you know, photographs just parts of the human body. And she knew he also did floral work. So she suggested that I explore his work. And it was honestly love at first sight. So in that sense, the botanical work led to still life work in the studio with a similar subject matter. And also at the same time, she had shown me an artist by the name of Ori Gerst. His work is really complex, and so I'm not going to do it fully justice, but I'll just maybe explain one element that I found incredibly compelling. So in his work, um, Fragile Land, he takes flowers and he shoots them with an air rifle timed to two cameras, one which takes an analog Polaroid image and one which takes a high resolution digital image. And they render completely different images, one which is soft, dreamlike with a quality of memory. And then the other, which is so technically precise is to exceed the resolution even of our human vision. And so both are absolutely truthful, but yet they are 
different. So the truth then becomes questioned. So his work, amongst other things, explores the tension between beauty and destruction and the multiplicity of truth, which I think is even more powerful given that photography has historically been, you know, the medium associated with truth and reality. So I was just really taken with his view on floral photography um, that was, you know, really exploring not just that of botanicals, but of conceptual art. So I not there yet personally, but you know, it really opened my eyes to the world of possibility. And um, so what I would say for me personally, this work and my transition into it from aerial photography is definitely harder just because the nature of it is so different. They're really two different, very artistic approaches. On the one hand, landscape photography is one where, you know, nature provides you with the subject. And as the photographer, you've got to portray it in an expressive manner in your own voice. But in some ways, it comes to you preformed. In still life, you have to find the things that you want to photograph. And then you have to arrange them and then light them and then, you know, create like a concept around the body of work. So I have a few images that I'm really happy with, um, but I think that this work it will... Is, is probably a bit more time intensive, at least for me, and will take me a bit longer to build that body of work, but I really enjoy it. It is so interesting for you to see the similarities, the parallels between aerial photography and still life photography and... Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did, and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. I'm curious to know, when you go back to shooting aerial photographs, will still life photography be something that you consider when you take photographs up in the air? Will that have affected you somehow? I'm wondering what that will be like for you. Um, that's an interesting question. I haven't experienced it yet, so I haven't yet had any of those epiphanies. I have to think that it will. Um, I definitely, I've definitely seen um, in other parts of my work where um, when I do photography in the landscape, how um, that actually helps me with my aerial photography. So I do think that it will. I just probably don't know the ways that it will yet. Right. Yeah, that's really, really exciting. I look forward to seeing the aerial photos you take in the future because I'm sure they'll look different. You know, they'll be affected by what you're currently experiencing. Yeah, I definitely think so too. So you're right. I will be quite interested myself as well. I've noticed in other interviews and in this interview that you often give credit to other artists, to other photographers. And I find that very admirable. I know that a lot of photographers, they struggle with maybe comparing their work to other photographers' work or maybe feeling like they shouldn't look at other people's work too much because their style will affect the way that they are shooting. So do you ever struggle with that? And 
just how do you balance that, that relationship you have with other photographers and your own unique style? Um, yeah, you know, I think I've been really fortunate in my journey uh, to have a couple of mentors and I think they've really helped me improve quickly, which is why I always like to give credit to them. And, um, you know, David Thompson has been one of my mentors in uh, the landscape photography world. And I think what makes him an exceptional mentor is that he coaches me, but he doesn't coach me in his style. Um, he really coaches me to bring the best out of me. So I, I think that's what I think really works in our particular sort of mentor-mentee relationship. And I don't think that it um, takes my own vision off track. Um, so that's why I would say about that. My other mentor in sort of the art world, sort of helping me bridge, um, you know, the fine art world. Um, what's nice about her, she's also an abstract photographer, um, but she really comes at it from a very different way. So she does sort of street photography. And she, I think she would say her work is at the intersection of street, sculptural and architectural work. So her approach is also incredibly different, but close enough that, you know, we can speak the same language. Um, so I think that's also a nice influence. I personally, uh, and I know everybody's different and every, everybody's got to find an approach that um, works for them. But I find that when I look at other people's artwork, it's more inspiration for me. You know, I may get ideas, but I never really want to do the same thing as somebody else. So it's really just ideas for me that come. And, um, you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for me, I can see things and then I kind of forget them. So I don't necessarily retain like the exact way that somebody's done something, but it's more that I get kernels or essences of um, influence. And so, you know, I think everybody in their work, you're, you're the sum, your work is the sum of everything that you have experienced. And I think that, you know, as you develop more and more, everybody really wants to have their own voice. So it's really just about taking those influences rather than um, copying. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's very healthy. I mean, I know a lot of photographers do try to avoid looking at other people's work too much, but mm -hmm. I personally also really like exposing myself to different types of art, especially in photography, different genres, because it's just that feeling that you get that ultimately affects the weight that you take your photographs. So you're not actually copying, but you're just, you're affected by it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that some photographers, um, they find that they are too affected. So for sure, there are some, for some photographers that won't work. But for me, um, yeah, I definitely really like to be inspired and see different kinds of work, all from different genres of photography. And that all informs like ideas that I get. And, you know, in my work, hopefully with all the, my other influences and my own voice, you know, it comes to fruition in a, in a unique way. Absolutely. It definitely does. I mean, your work is unique and it has a very specific voice to it. That is something that I don't come across very often in photography. So you're doing a great job. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No worries. You mentioned mentors. I know a lot of photographers, including myself, are very curious about this because how do you go about finding a mentor? What is the process like? Tell me more about that. Yeah, good question. Um, so for me, it was a very organic process. So I actually was introduced to David through the very first, uh, I think, professional photographer that I ever met. Uh, so his name is Bruce Amari, and I met him in Hawaii. Actually, it's kind of six degrees of separation. So he then introduced me to another photographer. 
And then that person introduced me to David while I was uh, photo- doing photography in Death Valley. And so David and I just kind of really hit it off right away. And I think so from a personality standpoint and a temperament standpoint, um, you know, I felt very comfortable with him. It was really easy to communicate. He was definitely a straight shooter, but always, you know, provided his constructive criticism with humor. So it was just, I think, a very natural and easygoing uh, relationship. I really liked his photography. I really liked his approach. Um, I really liked the way that he post-processed. So I think there was just a lot of affinity as a photographer and knowing that, you know, where he was coming from would likely be aligned with, you know, my vision. So I think that there were commonalities there that were helpful. And then I, it was very organic. So as we just, um, you know, did more work together, we I think I just kind of grew um, in that process and, and he would, you know, there were lots of places that I might want to go, but he was really good at kind of saying, okay, you're this, this is something that at your current skill level, you're going to do really well at, you're going to succeed. You're going to have a great experience. You're going to want to do more. So, you know, it was kind of also creating a path that would allow me to be very successful. And also, I think when you mentor both in the field and with the post-processing, because the two are kind of interrelated as you learn more about what you can do with the post-processing, it helps you understand how you photograph better and vice versa. So I think having that combination was also really helpful. And then, you know, in the post-processing, as, as I grew, you know, first it was about how I could learn, you know, some of the basics and how I could do things better. And then now it's less about that altogether. It's maybe more about how I could improve composition or how I can actually, you know, put together a more powerful gallery of images or body of work. So it's just kind of really advanced organically to, um, you know, from more, you know, intermediate to more advanced topics. Uh, But it's been a very organic process where I think we've just kind of grown together. And I think the other thing I would say about David is that, you know, as a mentor, what is fabulous about him is that he continues to grow. Um, You know, I think he would say, uh, and I would say, you know, that every body of work that he produces, you know, gets better and better. So he was already a great photographer. He continues to get better and better. And it's really nice to have a mentor that is also really progressing and growing as well. Right. You're growing together in a sense. So it's motivating for you both. And I think Hmm. that just having a mentor in general is very grounding because you're not entirely relying on yourself to learn something new. You're relying on someone else. Mm -hmm. And that way you remain humble because you acknowledge that there's always something for you to learn. And in photography can be a bit difficult to stay humble, especially if you have reached a certain level experience as you have I mean you're so advanced you have such a great portfolio of work yet you remain humble because you acknowledge that you still have a lot to learn and that's probably because I mean of who you are of course and also because of your mentors yeah well thank you so much I I still feel like I've got a long way to go (laughs) but yeah you know I think that's the beautiful thing about photography because it is you know about your self-expression right you know I think none of us hope that we're ever done. Like, you know, we're always trying to learn more things. We're always trying to grow. There are different things that we want to say about the world. So I think that is the wonderful thing about photography is that it's something that you're always going to continue to grow with. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very uplifting notion because some photographers 
that I've interviewed, and I feel this way sometimes as well, they say that they don't want to ever reach a point where they feel like they've taken their best photographs. And yeah. it's a fear that many people have because it's, even though it's art and it's endless and infinite and there's so much to do, we sometimes doubt our own abilities as photographers and we feel like, okay, I've reached this pinnacle and mm -hmm. only going to go down from here. So it's good to know that it's an up and down process and you're always learning and there's always something new that you can discover and always a new opportunity to improve. Definitely. Yeah. As someone who has traveled a lot, you are incredibly good at adapting to different environments. This shows in your work as a photographer. And as you mentioned, it shows in your recent experience uh, with still life photography. What advice would you give to someone who's resistant to change, especially when it comes to creative self-expression? Yeah, um, I think that maybe there are two reasons that I might be able to illustrate why it's good to be open to change when it comes to creative self-expression. Um, so the first I'd say is that while it might not be intuitive, um, trying different kinds of photography, even subgenres within your type of photography, it will actually help you improve the core parts of your work. So that was, you know, a question you asked me earlier about still life to aerial, which I don't know yet, but I can give you an example about how um, sort of field-based landscape photography has helped my aerial photography. So for anyone that's been to the Bistai Badlands in New Mexico, they'll know it's a gorgeous barren landscape with fascinating rocky badland formations, but it's extraordinarily complex. Um, and in those types of landscapes, you really can't compose as easily as you normally do. Um, and one way of composing there is, and to simplify the complex, is to look for a central area of focus and then to find balance in the sides, but there won't be perfect symmetry. It's this notion of asymmetrical symmetry. Um, and so you do your best to balance out disparate groupings of elements on either side to form some type of harmony within the image. Now, you might wonder, well, how could that help you in aerial photography? And I do find, um, you know, composition in the air to be fairly intuitive, but I really struggled when I initially went to the Northern Territories of Australia in the Kakadu National Park. So it's an incredibly complex landscape. And my intuition there was originally to get in really close and abstract everything. But I really found that I was struggling in the air. I didn't find that my images were conveying the majesty as a landscape. Um, so when I was reviewing my files and thinking, you know, what can I do differently? I really remembered the lessons from Bistai. And I thought, you know, Carolyn, you really need to embrace the complex. And so in this instance, rather than zooming in, you need to zoom out you know, whatever it was that I was shooting as that only focus, then that would become it. But then I would add in the wider elements and find that asymmetrical symmetry to create that more compelling image and a bigger story of the landscape. So, you know, here, instead of going in to simplify, I would actually have to zoom out to simplify. And I don't think I would have been able to make that leap if I hadn't been doing, you know, landscape field-based photography in uh, the Badlands of New Mexico. So that's one way. I think the other I'd say is that, you know, you never know when something like a pandemic will come into play and completely shift what you do in photography. Um, I have to say that I myself was very uncertain that I would find something that gives me the same thrill and joy that aerial photography does. 
And while plant photography doesn't have maybe the same exhilaration for a mini adrenaline junkie like me, um, what I realize now really at the heart of being a photographer is being centered in nature, discovering more about yourself and sharing those images and sentiments through both the visual and written language. And I actually do that in the same way with the plant photography as I do with aerial photography. So as a creative person, I think perhaps the most important thing I've come to realize in the pandemic is that the type of photography you do doesn't fully define you. It's actually the creative expression that does. Um, and maybe to give an example to kind of make this um, more concrete, in, uh, during the pandemic, there is an aerial image that I released as well as a studio-based image that I released that I realize actually express very similar sentiments of what I've been going through in the pandemic. So um, the very first one, it's an Im Im image entitled Embrace. Um, so I think almost like every photographer at the beginning of the pandemic, we all through, went through our archives to process images that, you know, we hadn't uh, had an opportunity to, or that maybe didn't resonate with us in the past. So this was an image from Iceland that I took in 2019. It clearly didn't resonate with me at the time because it didn't make my Iceland gallery, but it was immediately one of the very first images that I found in that archive review gallery. And it's of a river delta with two sedimentary islands. And the two sedimentary islands look like the arms of a person, you know, giving another person an embrace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think during the pandemic, with more isolation, we're all craving that human touch. And it was evoking the memories of an embrace, um, which is how I spoke about it when I released that image. Um, and then when I was putting in a, or talking about my first studio life image, it's a plant, it's an image of three Livestona leaves. So they're tropical uh, plants. You can probably imagine, you know, quite large, elegant uh, leaves that were a little bit smaller because they were dried and I had stacked them three, one on top of each other. Um, and when I was talking about them, you know, I really talked about, you know, that human intimacy that we're all craving um, in uh, the pandemic. And so I realized, you know, part of what I do, it's really about expressing, you know, what is going on with me and what I'm seeing through my visual language that's coming out in the images that I'm taking. And I was expressing very similar sentiments through my aerial photography as well as my still life. So I realized that, you know, I shouldn't only think about myself as an aerial photographer, that a lot of what you can do through your self-expression can be actually done through different genres of photography. And that was a huge epiphany for me. That's incredibly beautiful. I'm really happy that you had that epiphany because just even you just sharing this, I think will help a lot of people because it has helped me look at photography differently. While you were talking about it, I thought about my experience as a portrait photographer and how creative expression, creative self-expression is ultimately what matters most at the end of the day. So I think this is an uplifting epiphany because if a photographer specializes in something and they feel like that genre is their identity, then they can branch out and try new things and they will still be themselves. They will still have that voice in that other genre of photography. So that's very good to know because yeah, a lot of photographers do struggle with this idea of having this identity, feeling like they are linked forever to a specific genre and they're not allowed to experiment with other genres. So what you shared is very uplifting. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I had that epiphany, but your question actually really made it more concrete. So thank you for asking that question. It's a great question. I'm really happy that I was able to help in some way. <laughs> uh -huh. Speaking of aerial photography, which we've 
been discussing for a while in this interview. What are three things everyone should know about aerial photography? Yeah, okay. So first, I would say it's an adrenaline rush and really exhilarating. And to see from a different perspective is always so much fun. Second, I would say it can also be stressful um, because, you know, you only have so much time up there and, and often with aerial photography, there aren't any redos, so to speak. So the thing that I like to do to kind of de-stress and make sure that I can focus on the creative aspect when I, I'm up there is really to make sure that my equipment works beforehand. So in the days or weeks before, you know, I always just make sure that the camera and lens combination that I'm going to take up in the air focus at infinity properly and are sharp. Um, and then the one thing that I like to do is, you know, as we're going up in the aircraft um, and before we get to our destination, I just like to, you know, take a few test shots and just make sure they're sharp. So if I, if all that's happening, then, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good about my equipment, then all I focus on is the creative aspect when we're actually doing the photography. And then third, I would say, you know, go with the flow when you're up there. So you'll have done your research likely on Google Earth beforehand. You'll have planned your route because these are just things that you need to do when you're talking with a pilot and figuring out how much time you need in the air. But there are things that you will not see on Google Earth that will really excite you. And so you want to leave yourself open to those possibilities. And then there will be things that disappoint you just because of the way that you see things on Google Earth. They may actually be captured at another time, a different season. So the colors and shapes may be different to what you saw. So things that you originally planned, you know, might not interest you in the same way. So you need to have the plan, but you should be open to change when you're up there. And in fact, some of my favorite images, I didn't plan on at all because we had never seen them on Google Earth. So, I mean, I would say in general, make sure to have fun, take a bit of time just to enjoy yourself up there as well. Don't have your eye glued to the viewfinder hundred percent of the time. And you'll love it, I hope. Yeah, it's all great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I mean, yeah, you have to enjoy the process, obviously, as well, because when I take photographs, even on the ground, <laughs> I'm so obsessed with looking at everything through my viewfinder or if I'm photographing myself, I'm obsessed with the results. I think mm -hmm. what matters most is you enjoying the process. So it's good to just forget about photography for a second sometimes and just enjoy the view because it's an unusual view up there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to do that at the beginning, but, you know, as you get more familiarized with it, you know, those are the things that you can do. Exactly. Yeah. It takes practice, but you can get there. So that's De definitely uh, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you and that is, what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Yeah. So for me, I would say it's connection to community. So while I do photography for myself as a meditative, creative, and diarizing type of practice, one of the greatest joys I have is when my work emotionally connects with a viewer, whether it's in a way that's similar to me or one which is completely different, or even if it's helped them work through a challenging experience. In these more isolating times, I think the power to connect with visual images and the written word has been, you know, one of the most rewarding experiences. So whether I accomplish that on an individual level or with a wider audience, you know, that's what's really rewarding for me. A beautiful answer. I think being a part of a community in the photography world is very important because you have these people that you can rely on either directly or indirectly. And then you have this whole support group that you can share your work with and get responses from. So yeah, I completely understand your sentiment about that. And Thank you so much for sharing your work with me and with the listeners and for talking about your beautiful approach to photography. I learned so much from you 
and I wish you all the very best with your journey as a photographer. Thank you so much, Taya. It's been wonderful to be with you. I really enjoyed your questions. Um, they were really illuminating for me, even myself. Um, and uh, I also look forward to seeing your journey um, in photography and in the media world. Thank you so much. Carolyn is such an inspiring, eloquent person. I had so much fun talking to her. And after our interview, I was so refreshed. I felt compelled to look at my work from a different perspective. I hope that you had a similar experience, and I hope that this episode gave you a nice boost of inspiration. See you next week. There's a simple reason why PhotographyCourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.